Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, May 6th, we are studying 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Since Christ is coming soon and this world is coming to an end, what kinds of lives should Christians lead? St. Peter closes his second epistle with such instruction and encouragement. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor John Busman. Pastor Busman serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Coleman, Alabama. Pastor Busman, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you, especially in this Easter season. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Pastor Busman, we've got the end of Second Peter today, so the, the entirety of the epistle stands in front of us as context, if needed. What do we need to know about this epistle, about Peter, about the context going into our text for today? Sure. Yeah, I guess if we're at the end, uh, we, we've had some kind of context really sprinkled throughout, but, uh, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to discuss a book like Second Peter because it's, you know, it's, it's not that well-known of a book. You know, it's very easily skipped over once you get to the end of Paul's epistles and kind of skip forward to the book of Revelation, but it is there. And uh, again, it is considered uh, anti-legomena that, you know, it it was very early a disputed text. Uh, Some spoke against this as being a text of the scriptures, but uh, but 2 Peter should be in in the Bible. and you know we could we could discuss some of those some of those things if you if you'd like uh but you know there there are i guess the main concern over whether or not it should be there is that peter's authorship had been questioned and and that uh, the greek was seen as as quite different than his than his first epistle but you know several church fathers have spoken to that and and Make make very very good cases. You know, on the on the other hand, there are some other apocryphal works, some some work that you know should not definitely be in the in the text of the scriptures. Uh, for instance, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Acts of Peter. There's even a Gospel of Peter, which uh, speaks to a strange occurrence, which you know, of course, does not happen where. Uh, the cross of Jesus actually leaves the tomb of Jesus on its own and, and proclaims that uh, that Jesus has, in fact, descended into hell. So, you know, some strange mm-hmm. things there that uh, that, that did come much later. No, none of them have anything to do with with First or Second Peter, and it's so so different from from either of one of either one of those. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the Acts of Peter, ironically. It, it speaks against false teachers, and, and somebody apparently came along much later as a false teacher, you know, writing that very work. So it's it's kind of kind of ironic there. But uh, you know, I'm sure you, your your hearers have heard uh, plenty up to this point about the legitimacy of a book uh, like like Second Peter. Uh, so. I'm just glad to have the opportunity to to discuss it. Sure. I mean, and it is something, some of the arguments that get advanced against Second Peter sound, and I don't mean to make too much light of it, but it sounds silly, you know, like, well, First Peter and Second Peter sound different from each other. And that's true, but that doesn't mean they have to be different authors by any means. I'm sure that not every sermon that you preach in Alabama sounds exactly the same as the last one, right? I mean, an author has the the freedom to have a different style from one epistle to the next. And so, yeah, again, this is this is the second epistle of St. Peter, the apostle of Jesus, writing to those churches in in Asia Minor. What what kinds of themes has he brought out that we're going to see pick up here at the end? The the two major themes that that I see running through this text are are condemning false teachers and in the end of of all things, which are really 
you know, congruent with other New Testament epistles as well. You know, we, we hear the Apostle Paul constantly speaking as false teachers. For example, the, the letter to the churches of Galatia, and, you know, he speaks of the end in Romans and First and Second Thessalonians. So the, the, the things of which Peter speaks are, are congruent with, you know, with other things that, that we're seeing, but definitely false teachers and, uh, and the end times comes through brightly shining in these short three chapters. And that that theme of the end times, that's where we left off in the last text where Peter was telling us about the return of Jesus, how God is waiting. His patience is actually his mercy toward us because he desires people to be saved. And and that's going to be the bridge now to our text today. So this is Second Peter chapter three, beginning at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. That is our text for today, 2 Peter 3, verses 11 through 18. So, Pastor Busman, our text begins in verse 11. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people are you to be? Uh, what What's Peter doing here? He's making a transition from the end times, and now it sounds like he's, he's going to say, now what does that mean for you today? Take us into this first verse of our text. Yeah, thanks. And just to kind of connect uh, where you were before with, with verse 10, we're reminded that, that this day is coming like a thief, mm-hmm. that the day is certain, it is unavoidable, uh, it's coming suddenly and, and very unexpectedly. So there's no time There's no time for any apathy, there's no time for, for idleness, just to kind of sit back and, and, and see what's going to happen, like we're, like we're Jonah on some hillside waiting for destru- destruction for everybody else. You know, we are to be, to be alert, you know, this is the... the, the the other things that we hear throughout the scriptures: be ready, be be on your toes. So everything's going to be dissolved. Holiness, uh, godliness, basically in the manner that that we've been called to live our lives. We we talk uh, in the church often, especially with the third uh, with the third article of the Apostles' Creed, lives. In, in sanctification, holy lives, set-apart lives. Now, that's not some kind of stair-step thing where, you know, we're, we're leading towards our own justification, that we've been saved, and in that saving act of God, He has set us apart as His church. So that, those are the lives that we're, that we're intended to, to lead, not like the rest of the world. We are called we are called to look different, to speak differently, to act differently. And, you know, this is a really, really good text for these days, a really good standard to to set up. You know, if, if somebody sees us, do they see someone different, or do they see the same person as they encounter every other day, every other minute of, of their lives? Mm-hmm. This has really been a theme for Peter in both of his epistles, the the theme of of you know, sanctified living came through in his first epistle in a variety of ways. It was particularly true there, I think, in the matter of suffering, that Christians suffer in this life and they do so with joy, with patience, with endurance, knowing that their Lord 
our Lord has suffered for us and with us as well. And and now that, that same theme has come through here in the second epistle about the, the way the lives of Christians look different, particularly in in contrast to the false teachers. Back in chapter two, Peter spent a lot of time detailing the various sins that are evident in the lives of false teachers. And as I was reflecting on on that, so many of those sins that Peter identifies in the lives of the false teachers are evident in the lives of the world today, as, as I think you're bringing out. And so how much more, again, is this a text for us today that, you know, the fact that Jesus is coming again and coming soon, like a thief in the night, that actually means something for the way that I live right now. If I deny that fact that he's coming and coming again soon, I'm going to live in one way, like the false teachers. But if I believe that fact, because the Lord has made his promise and will fulfill it, then my life does look totally different. And as you said, particularly in these gray and latter days, how important is that for us as Christians? Right. Uh, You know, we are not to make God out to be a liar. What he has said, he has said, and he has, he has certain expectations of his children. And, those are the lives that, that that he does expect us expect us to live to not to not again live in apathy or or comfort, but uh, in eager in, in this eager expectation uh, that he that he speaks of for for that day. Hmm. That eager ex- expectation of that day comes through. I think pretty clearly in verse 12, which, and and there's maybe a a bit of a a juxtaposition here. On the one hand, we're waiting for it with patience. And, and yet there's also the sense of, it says hastening the coming of the day of God. That's how the ESV translates it. Uh, What is, what is Peter talking about here? This waiting for and hastening at the same time. Right. So again, we know, we know it's coming. We're called upon to be, to be patient and endure in that uh, potential suffering, but there's nothing that we're going to do that's going to make God either slow down His coming or to or to act more quickly. So there's nothing that we can do uh, that that affects God in that way. Uh, in other words, you know, God's not waiting on anything to happen here in this earth or on this earth by us. In order that he might come, and this is this is one of the one of the chief false theologies that that you know especially kind of runs rampant down down here where we are is that you know Jesus is waiting for us to to complete you know these three works in order that he you know he may come you know you often hear that you know well he's waiting on everybody to be able to hear the word first or He's waiting on, you know, we, we really need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and we, we really need to, uh, you know, make all the Jews move to Israel. And once they're there, and once the temple's back, well, then Jesus will come, as if, as if his return somehow depends upon us, hmm. which it absolutely doesn't. You know, we can't do anything to, to slow him down. We can't do anything to make him work more quickly. God does things in his own time. So as we wait, we do it with, with, uh, with patience, no matter what comes our way. As, as you're talking about how, you know, there's nothing we can do to make the day of the Lord come quicker. You know, God has set the day as, as we know, is this kind of like what Luther does in the small catechism when it comes to the particularly the first three petitions of the Lord's prayer. And I'm thinking particularly of the second, thy kingdom come. You know, what does this mean? The kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it would come to us also. Is that, is that a similar thing that Peter's doing here that you know, on the one hand, God knows when the day is and that day will come when he has set. But for us as Christians, we're praying thy kingdom come, Lord, let that come to us. This is something we desire, something we long for. And so we wait for it with, with patience and eagerness at the same time. Yeah, that's a, That's an excellent, uh, an excellent connection. And if, if, uh, if the hearers are, are going to, to get into their catechism, that would be amazing to look at, especially to, uh, to look at Luther's work in the large catechism, in, in my opinion, 
his work on the Lord's Prayer and the Large Catechism is, is some of his best uh, best writing that, that he does. So, yeah, absolutely. Fully, fully agreed there. As, and, and just as an aside, when it comes to the Large Catechism, I do, I remember very distinctly the first time I read the Large Catechism. It was when I was in, in college taking a course in the Lutheran Confessions. And the first time I read the Large Catechism, particularly that section on the Lord's Prayer, I was amazed at how wonderful it is. And just, again, this is a bit of an aside, but when the Lord's Prayer particularly for me is the part of the, the catechism, both small and large, that I, I, I think I value the most because the Lord's Prayer is of the parts of the catechism, the easiest one for me to speed through without thinking about it. And, and both the small and the large catechisms help me to slow down and and to really cherish the things that God invites me to ask for and then the things that he gives me. So I, I, I add a, a hearty second to that, Pastor Busman. No, yeah, you're, you're and we read it uh, my third year of, of catechism. We read through the large catechism, and, and we slow down, and we read it part by part. So all of my young people are, when I read it and, and, and you know, it was taught to, you know, treasure it, I, I, I knew there, there was no sense in them waiting any longer before they got their hands on it. That's right. Now, as as we return here to the text of Second Peter, again, we're in verse 12. Peter says, you know, waiting for, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. He says the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Previously in verse 11, where he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. And, and in verse 10, which comes before our text, and he talks about being burned, being dissolved. What, that's, that's pretty harsh language. What are we, what are, what is he telling us about the last day and what happens to this heaven, this earth? Yeah, that that is that is an excellent question, and we need to remember that we do need to take this letter of of, of Peter in context with the rest of the scriptures to to help us form what is what is to happen at the end. And these aren't you know contradictory images; they're all they're all the same thing. But the language that he's used about the uh, the well, what is about to come, and, and, and its seriousness, it's coming like a thief. There's a roar, uh, the burning, dissolving, all, all of this. It's, it's a very, very intense image that he, that he brings forward, but it all fits uh, within the rest of, the, with, within the, rest of the, the biblical image of this new heavens and, and new earth which he talks about here uh, very, very quickly. So another false theology that, that sometimes arises within different church bodies uh, is something called annihilationism, which simply confesses that basically those in Christ will be saved. And, well, there, there are a couple of parts here. Those in Christ will be saved, and then Everything else, uh, everybody who didn't believe in Jesus, all the enemies of, of God, are, are completely wiped out, completely, you know, turned to dust, and the dust, you know, blows away, never to be, uh, you know, just just not to exist anymore. And this certainly does not happen. This is not our confession in the resurrection. All are raised from the dead. Uh, the the righteous, those in Christ, rise to life, and those enemies of Christ, those who did not confess Christ as Lord, those who were not sealed uh, by water in the Word, will rise to everlasting judgment. So they're not simply uh, wiped away. In the same way, this present earth that we uh, inhabit, that we have been given as, as an inheritance by God our Father, this creation that was given to us, that was created out of nothing and called by God to be very good, will not be thumped out of existence or, or burned completely out of existence. It is, uh, it is a fire more of, of uh, refining in, in nature. So when we see the word new, we are looking at 
um, you know, the way Isaiah speaks about it as, as like a new moon. So when the moon has its cycle, and we call it a new moon, it's not like God has wiped out the, the last moon and, and created some brand new moon out there. It's, it's restored. It's, it's, it's renewed. And, and this is the way we look at, at this creation. Uh, whenever this, the scriptures speak of things being consumed by fire, it is a renewing, refining fire, not that God will wipe everything out and have to speak once again, let there be light, and there was light. That's, that's not uh, true to the scriptures. It's a, it's a renewal of creation. Mm. So I, I think the image of the new moon is helpful. I think Paul uses the image of a, a seed in 1 Corinthians 15, if I remember, that the, the perishable body is sown Right. Isn't right. that how he talks at that? You know, so think about right. how a seed is planted in the ground and then the plant sprouts. And maybe if I could say it like this, on the one hand, there's a there's a certain discontinuity between the seed and the plant. I mean, it doesn't there's there's a different sort of look to it. And yet there is a definitely a continuity. The seed is sown and then it, it you know, it's the same. That's the seed that came up as the plant. I think that's maybe another helpful way. So there's there's some of both. I mean, and, and I guess another way of, th- you know, Jesus, he's the only one that's raised from the dead like this so far. We know the rest of us will join him one day. But I mean, he's that's his body that's raised from the dead. And yet that body is raised imperishable and can never die again. So there's, there's both continuity and discontinuity at the same time. And so the, the same, I think what we're saying is the same thing's going to happen for all of creation, right? Right. Right. And there, there is something, like you said, you know, there is something different about it. I mean, none of us, none of us know or have ever experienced what it's like not only to be without sin, but to face a creation that's not corrupted by sin. We, we, don't, we don't understand that. So it will be different than anything we have ever experienced. I mean, think about the, the very resurrection of Jesus. I mean, are, 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 is anybody going to confess that Mary Magdalene didn't know what Jesus looked like, or the, the people on the road to Emmaus who... Mm seem to have known everything about what happened in Jerusalem, yet they're walking with Jesus and don't recognize him. You know, are, are we meant to, to, to say that, well, they really didn't know what they were talking about? And it's not that Jesus, you know, doesn't look like Jesus anymore or anything like this, but, but yeah, they're looking upon a body that is imperishable at this point. Something is, something is different about it, and, and the same will be true about about the next creation. No more tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No more, no more, you know, opportunity for another fall, in other words. And, and we just, we've never experienced anything like this. Mm. This is part of our eager anticipation to, to figure out what that actually looks like and what that feels like. Right. And so in, in that sense, because it, it is something so, so different than what our experience is. You know, I have no idea what it is like to live as a, a person with a body that, you know, doesn't get hurt. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to stub my toe and it's going to ache or a fall and break an arm or something like that. Those, I have no, no idea what that's like. And so in, in that sense, there is this matter of, you know, the being set on fire dissolved. It's a, it's something that's totally different. And yet, you know, it's still my body. That, that is raised from the ground as this immortal, incorruptible body. And so you, you've got both things, you know, that again, that discontinuity and continuity at the same time. And I think Peter's language here fits in perfectly, as you said, with the rest of Scripture's testimony about this. Uh, one, one detail that we haven't yet covered there in verse 13, when he talks about what we're waiting for, the new heavens and the new earth, he says, in which righteousness dwells. What does that mean? A long-standing biblical issue, especially in the Old Testament, Isaiah really, really, really hits on this in the very beginning of his book. And I won't, you know, go all the way through the Old Testament, but speak specifically here when Isaiah is talking about the corruption of Judah and 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 warning them about what they have become and what's going to happen. He says in chapter 1, how the faithful city has become um, 
we, we shall say for the sake of the show, uh, unchaste. Mm. And then he says, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. So, in other words, there's nothing pure there. This is, this is what idolatry does. This is what false teachers, to speak, uh, you know, Peter's language, this is what they do. They uh, intermingle with what, is, with what God has called pure and holy, and it becomes corrupted. It becomes uh, mixed. You know, Paul will use the language about uh, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump to take to take us back to uh, Easter Sunday uh, Easter Sunday language but that will be no more there will there, there will be the the separation uh, Jesus speaks in the parable of the, of the wheat and the tares right everything grows up together until the end and there's this separation and in the end in the new heavens and the new earth uh, it will only be righteousness the the thing that God looks for so longingly, with his people of old and, and, and did not find it at all. Uh, when, when all things are new, that's all that he will find is, is righteousness. Mm. And, and, and so we wait for it with eagerness, with patience, just like Isaiah did. It's quite, quite something that, you know, his book ends with this kind of language, new heavens and new earth. And, and Peter picks that up here in his epistle as well. We're going to keep looking at St. Peter here on sharper iron Looking at 2 Peter chapter 3 with Pastor John Busman. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, May 6th. We're studying 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. We have Pastor John Busman with us. He serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Coleman, Alabama. Pastor Busman, prior to the break, we're looking at this first couple of verses through verse 13 of 2 Peter chapter 3. In verse 14, we get that important word, therefore, and he calls them beloved again. This has been an important word that we've talked about previously. So therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him. Take us into verse 14. Now, therefore is a word that typically will signal uh, our work. We have uh, the writers of the epistles will often use the word but to signal uh, God's work and, and, and gospel. Therefore, we'll, we'll turn it kind of back to us. You know, what, what is expected of us? And, and before he gets into that, he does call them beloved uh, one more time. And, and that's a good thing to do, to remind these people who they are in Christ, who God has called them to be, and, and, and reminding them again that, that the end of all of things, it's a serious thing. When, when Christ returns, when everything uh, is, is made new, there's no, well, wait for me. I mean, the door is closed. That's, that's it. So it's serious business. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and he gives, you know, he says, since you're waiting for these, he says, be diligent to be found by him. I think it almost a, on the one hand, you know, be diligent. Don't take this for granted, but also that you are found so that your diligence, it, it, you're diligent, but your salvation doesn't depend on you. I mean, both of those things I think, think go together there in this verse. Right. It, it's, it's certainly passive, right? God does not turn people out into his creation to quote unquote, find themselves. Right, be found. This is this is something that it, that is happening to us, and and how does this happen? But uh, first and foremost, uh, through the word, right? Through that word, we are 
uh, called uh, by the gospel, back to the third article of the creed, and and we are called to to repentance, uh, being found without without spot or blemish. We don't somehow, you know, wash or cleanse ourselves or or anything like this. We are washed again. Uh, passive, it happens outside of us, and and where can we be found without spot or blemish, uh, but but through the the unblemished Lamb Himself, Jesus Christ, right? In our baptism, we take His identity. The alternate identity would be to be blemished, to be like that of the false teachers, mixed with all of this other other junk that that causes us to lose uh, who God has has called us to be. None of those things prepare for the end to intermingle with with the one speaking falsehood or, or any of this, we are to be as God has called us to be, uh, unblemished, uh, no no spot, and and then to be at peace. And and that peace only do, only does come through His cross. Peace made between God and man, and and peace through the forgiveness of sins between between one another. To be without spot or blemish here is one of those points in this epistle where I I really think that you see the connections that are exist between first and second Peter, both because it was back in first Peter chapter one, where Peter extolled Christ, the lamb as the one who had no spot or blemish, the one who was without defect, who, who paid the price for our ransom, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood. And then, as you said, the same connection then to the, and it's a contrast this time in chapter two, where the false teachers, they are the ones who do have the spot and the blemish because they do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because they've denied him as their master because they don't, don't look for his coming. In fact, just are denying it so they can live however they want. I mean, so you, you see how, I mean, I, I think, you know, Peter, he's making these connections all through both of his epistles, again, pointing us to Christ and the work that, that Christ has done for us. In verse 15, he seems to return to a theme that he developed in the previous text. He says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Sounds That sounds like a reminder to what we looked at a little bit in yesterday's text. What is Peter saying there? And, and even back to this text, you know, when he, as he's talking about waiting, uh, you know, waiting is, is uh, comes out all throughout the scriptures and, and, you know, to to say that God's people don't handle waiting well is probably an understatement. Uh, you know, we we certainly don't see Abraham and Sarah handling waiting for a son very well, as as Sarah, you know, commends Hagar to, to Abraham. We don't we don't find Israel handling waiting well as Moses is up on Mount Sinai. I mean, they fall into idolatry. So again. You know, calling the the serious business of of the end, and and to to wait is is significant. Uh, but to count uh, to count this patience as salvation could uh, be spoken of to say, you know what, um, God is not inactive in this. He's not off doing something else, or even to say he's a liar, as some false teachers would, you know, because God says, I'm coming again, and because he's delayed, it seems, is not not to say he's not coming again at, at all. It, it's, it's actually for for salvation. You know, Elijah, when he, when he faces off against the prophets of Baal, kind of mocks these false prophets over this very thing, right? Maybe, maybe, um, Baal is uh, musing or relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or he, he's asleep. You know, none of these things are, are attributes of God. He is very active within his creation, and Peter's very clear. Counted as salvation, hmm. because as much as we pray, come Lord Jesus, and, you know, we, we want him to come now, to bring this restoration now. You know, we are in this world uh, of hurt, and Christians all over the world are uh, undergoing persecution. Terrible and awful things are happening all over the place, and we we want Jesus to come today and, and make it all new. But every day that He does wait, 
more are being saved. More, you know, there will be more who inherit the new heavens and the new earth tomorrow than, than there were today. You think about you think about the difference that one day makes here. But when we compare that to eternity, there's no comparison. I mean, tomorrow, there there are people who would have gone to hell to, today hmm. who will inherit life tomorrow. Uh, so, so, you know, sometimes that doesn't, you know, the world that we live in still is, is corrupt. But to know that and to take comfort in that and to, and to be able to, to come around our brothers and sisters and to endure together... It, it does make that endurance uh, a little bit lighter when we put it in that perspective. Mm-hmm. So I, let me, I, I love what you said there, and I think it's so helpful. Let me try to, to maybe phrase it in, a, in another way. The temptation for us, it seems, and the temptations for, for God's people throughout the ages would be to count the patience of our Lord as inactivity or aloofness or indifference that that when i when i can't see that the lord is at work or when the lord is waiting i think he either doesn't care about me or he's just not doing anything he's somehow inactive and that would be the the temptation that exists and it seems that that's the temptation that the false teachers have fallen into you know just in that previous text that was essentially what they're saying everything's been going on the same way it always has been where is the activity of god in this world and the temptation for us as his people would be to fall into that same way of thinking peter reshapes our minds he reshapes our thinking to say when you see the lord being patient don't think that he's doing nothing or that he doesn't care rather recognize that his patience is in fact salvation and and for for you and for more people which is just a a totally different way of of thinking than than we normally would have and so important for us to again to to help us to rejoice in our waiting and to rejoice even in the suffering that we endure while we're waiting knowing that you know God's not doing nothing and instead he's quite active in his patience which is i mean that's not something that we think about i don't think it sounds it sounds weird to say that our our patience our waiting seems like we're not doing anything but when God waits, when God is patient, he's actually doing something. And that something that he's doing is saving. That, that's marvelous. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, to, to, to hear that word, to know that he still is active and taking confidence in that activity is, is something that, that we cling to with, with all our heart. Hmm. Now, as Peter continues, he, he brings up Paul. So he said, you know, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And he's going to continue here with Paul for a little bit. There's there's quite a bit I think we're going to be able to say here. Just the fact that he mentions Paul as a beloved brother seems pretty significant. Absolutely, because there, there was a, a previous dust up with the Apostle Paul and Peter that Paul actually references and brings up in in Galatians chapter two, uh, when you know he flat out says, "Look, I had to I had to confront confront Peter. He was acting one way in front of the Gentiles and acting another in front of the Jews, and I had to say to him, you, you know, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews?" So you know they're dealing with this uh, you know, circumcision issue and all of this. And and he has to kind of call, kind of call Peter on this. And what we see is that Peter and Paul just didn't go their separate ways. And you know, Paul go through uh, you know Asia Minor, and Peter kind of stay in Jerusalem, and they never never talk again. No, they they lived as brothers in Christ, and did what Peter is, is commending Christians to do, to live at, at peace with, with one another. And that's encouraging for us to, to know that there is reconciliation, even, you know, because it's not really brought to an end anywhere else. But, but yeah, they're, they're brothers in Christ, beloved. There's also unity in the apostolic message. We've talked about that a little bit already, that, that 
Peter is saying the same thing as Paul. Paul says the same thing as Peter, and they're both saying the same thing as Jesus. Right. The same thing that the Word said uh, in the Old Testament. There's there's unity there in the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. I, I love notes like this here at the end of epistles where you get a name drop of sorts. And of course, you know, you've got Peter mentioning Paul particularly. I think it, it really helps us have a better picture of what the early church is like. I think sometimes we have this picture in our minds that it was very primitive. You know, they didn't have iPhones or whatever it is that we have that we think were better, you know? And so they were, but, but I mean, the picture that you get, particularly from these, the close of many of the epistles, Peter's and Paul's and John's is that there's a lot of interaction between these various apostles and various churches. And to see Peter acknowledging it here, I think it's just, it's fantastic. And as you said, most importantly, you know, it's not like Peter's got his theology Paul's got his theology, John's got another one, and then there's Jesus somewhere else. This is all the same scriptural doctrine, which, as Peter said at the very beginning of this letter, wasn't made up by man, but it came from inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I mean, and just to, I mean, it's a very robust theology of the word and of of the the unity of the doctrine that's there for us in the scriptures, which I think sometimes we maybe forget in our world today. Well, we do. And and to counter that with really the way people lived and heard things, then we've kind of got a lot of the same going on today. It was going on in in the Corinthian church when some were saying, well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. You know, very early with the rabbis, this was going on. Which rabbi do you follow? And that can go on today as, as pastors can even kind of take on their own personality and people follow after after the individual rather than the the message that's being proclaimed. And that's what Paul tries to reorient the people on. That's what Peter tries to orient the people on, that, you know, look, we're all saying the same thing, mm-hmm. and you're all getting the same message. So... The message that was written to the Corinthians is the same message that was that was written to the churches of Galatia, and they're not, you know, sure, these letters were written to individual churches in the beginning, but sometimes we forget, too, that these letters quickly began to circulate. Peter, in, in his first epistle, talks about proclaiming to the, to the elect exiles, mm-hmm. so he's not necessarily writing to an individual church to, to begin with, like uh, like Paul is. But he says here in the text, in this verse, as our, as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, well, Paul doesn't have a letter that says to the elect exiles, which kind of, again, interestingly signals to us that Paul's letters have already been made. He even says this himself in Colossians chapter 4, as he concludes that letter, he says, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So there's kind of mutual uh, mutual learning and, and, and growth going on going on within the, these, these churches, because in the end, what are the letters about but Jesus and proclaiming his resurrection from the dead. Mm, yeah, I mean, and, and even First Peter, you know, he, he talks about the elect exiles, and he he mentions several churches, Cappadocia, Pontus, and, and others. Right. I mean, you know, as, as if that letter, and this one as well, because he says this is the second letter, that both of those would have made the rounds. And he's saying, look, you've, you've got letters from me, you've got letters from Paul, and they're all saying the same thing. That, that it's this is the doctrine that's been given to us by the Lord. It comes, it's being written down here, just like it was by the prophets, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, now Peter says, and I, I don't know if I should, but I kind of chuckle at what Peter says about Paul's writings. <laughs> in verse 16, as he, that's Paul, as Paul does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which I've read Paul's letters and I agree, Peter, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. What, what is, what, what's Peter saying here? 
Right. In, in, you know, he's not, he's not condemning Paul for his writing. He, he's simply acknowledging what we all know, what you confessed and what I confessed. Some of it is hard. And, and I don't know anybody out there who's reading the scriptures who, who would truthfully disagree with this. I mean, who, who does understand this completely? For example, when Paul talks about the rock that followed them, namely the Israelites in the wilderness, the rock that followed them was Christ. You know, okay, let, let's, let's talk about that, uh, Paul. Let's talk about being caught up in the third heaven, Paul. <laughs> I mean, there's... <laughs> There, there are some difficult things in there. He's, he's not wrong, but he's also not, not, uh, not condemning him. But if we can rely back on the unity of the message, you know, yeah, let's use this epistle of Peter to help us along with Paul. Let's use Romans and First Thessalonians to help us along with this writing from from Peter. That's that's what we should be doing. Uh, finding finding unity in the scriptures, helping us to understand more fully. Of what's going on hmm. now he, he also mentions that the ignorant and unstable are doing something against these letters of paul what is what does he say about them they're, they're twisting they're twisting these words the, the word that is used there uh, literally means to twist or to torture and it, it's a word that's used to describe the way that the romans would treat prisoners hmm. so we can see this as not some sort of uh, well, oops! I didn't. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that wasn't the interpretation. No, it, it's active and it's intentional and it's ongoing. So they're taking these words and they're intentionally twisting them to fit their own their own agenda. These false teachers are, and and the more the words get twisted, the harder the interpretation is. So you, you can twist the scriptures all you want to to, to fit your ways. The, the stickier the situation gets, and and the end is, in fact, destruction. Uh, and the, this twisting, you think about the one who, the the first one who came twisting along as the serpent in the garden. This is this is his work. I mean, he he's the one that's behind it all. But uh, but yeah, it's active and it's intentional, and it only makes things worse. And that certainly fits with the picture that Peter has given us of these false teachers, uh, their active, intentional forgetting of what they should know from the scriptures already and and using it to their own purposes to, you know, but as he, he points out, this is actually to their own destruction. Uh, before we leave this this particular verse, there's that last note, which I think is, it might be easy to read over, but we should pay attention to. Peter says, again, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And then he says this, as they do the other scriptures. So if, if I'm reading that right, Peter is saying Paul's letters are on the same level as the Old Testament. Right. That's huge. And, and again, it's not that these people just kind of have it out for Paul, like some people do today. It's, it's active and intentional throughout the scriptures, because if you're going to corrupt Paul, you're going to have to start corrupting some of the words of Jesus, and you're going to have to start corrupting some of the words of the prophets in order to make everything, everything align. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right to, to put Paul on par with the prophets, kind of bringing this, these New Testament writings on par with the, the sacred scriptures of the Old Testament is, uh, is, is, is huge for, for our theology and the way we confess the scriptures, both New and Old Testaments, to be uh, the inerrant Word of God. Right. And, and Peter's done this already to a degree back in chapter one when he talked about, you know, his eyewitness and earwitness account up there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then he says, oh, and we also have the very sure prophetic word. And he puts that that apostolic witness and the prophetic word on the same level. He's doing it here now with, with Paul's word as well, that this again, these are the scriptures. These are God's word. And I mean, it's, and it's all the same. Paul, Peter, Jesus, John, Isaiah, all the Old Testament saints as well. They proclaimed Christ. So we're coming here close to the end. Verse 17, Peter says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. We got about five minutes here to cover these last two verses, Pastor Busman. Sure. The, the, the line that's... Uh Interesting, of course. Well, he calls them beloved again, right? Reminding yeah. them constantly who, who they are in Christ. 
because losing your stable position would be, again, the opposite of being at, at peace. So losing your stable position, you would be in chaos, uh, away from Christ, which is where these false teachers are, are, um, are, are leading, leading them to be. How does he conclude the epistle in verse 18? Right, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grow, uh, continually grow. That, uh, and as we do that, as we read these scriptures and learn to be, to be greater confessors of the Word, the more we are able to, as, as John speaks in his first epistle, to, to test the spirits. And, and this is ultimately what we need to do as we wait, as we listen to the proclaimers of the Word, and they say this is the Word of the Lord. We need to actually be able to say, is that the Word of the Lord? Mm-hmm. Because there are, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of false teachers who are still around today, and they are taking advantage of a lot of people. And not only are they going to meet their end, and their end will be destruction, but uh, you know the people they lead, unfortunately, will, will meet theirs too. So we have a duty, especially as pastors, to, to continue doing what we're doing and, and sharpening each other, uh, holding each other accountable to the Word, because we actually... Uh, we we actually do have people that we are caring for and, and, and raising up in this word, and we need to be doing it the right way because the end of all things is no joke. Hmm. That last statement that he makes there, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, and then amen, I think fits very well with what you're saying about you know n- recognizing what is true and false. I've, I've been reading recently uh, one of Walther's works, called All Glory to God. It's really a series of essays from from Walther. And it's about as close to, to a systematic theology as you'll get from Walther. But his his basic thesis through these essays is that you know the the Lutheran teaching is true because in every article of doctrine we give all glory to God. And I mean just again, so to, to kind of put this here in, in context with Second Peter, as he closes, to him be glory now and into the day of eternity what's one of the ways that I'm going to be able to recognize is this true or false? Well, does this teaching give glory to God or not? If it does, then, then Peter says, amen. If it doesn't watch out, watch out for that false teaching. Pastor Buston with about two minutes here, help us wrap things up for this text, the epistle of second Peter today. Sure. We're called upon as we, as we wait on this day that will come, uh, that will come quickly and suddenly uh, we are simply called upon to be faithful, to, to live as brothers and sisters in Christ in peace, to wait with eager expectation, to not fear the things that, that, uh, that stand in front of us, um, but to, to wait knowing that each and every day more and more are, are being saved, and we give glory to God once again uh, for his saving work. Pastor John Busman is the pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Coleman, Alabama, helping us today with 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. Pastor Busman, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks so much for having me again. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about 2 Peter or Jude, which we will begin tomorrow, or the book of Jeremiah, which will be the next series that we will begin here on Sharper Iron, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org so we can answer and help you continue to sharpen your faith in Christ. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.